Live from Utrecht, this is the fan William Sjors Nedo. Hello. Sjors, we're recording this on Wednesday evening, Dutch time. Bitcoin just broke 20k dollars. Are you ecstatic? No, oh, no. Okay. This episode, is, we're going to discuss open source. Yes. <laughs> I'm just going to skip over the whole price thing. We're going to discuss open source and why it's useful. Yep. Or, or free software and why it's useful. Are you on the free software train or on the open source train? I'm do on you, every train. I'll, I'll, do you I know like that? trains, but tell me some I can I can tell you the difference because a lot of people don't know this. There, There isn't a lot of difference except for like a philosophical difference. So the idea is that Richard Stallman, he, he founded the free software movement. And the idea there was if software is closed source, then there is sort of a power relationship between developers and users because users don't know what software they are running and we'll get to this in a bit i guess well i can explain this very briefly right now the reason is and you know this but i'm explaining it to our listeners yeah the reason is that the actual software you're running on your computer are binaries they're ones and zeros that's the stuff computers can read while humans when they write software they write computer code and the two aren't the same thing. So when you're running closed software, software, you're just running the binaries and you're not exactly sure what your computer is actually doing. So what your computer could be doing, for example, is spy on you. If the developer puts some malware into the closed source software, then your computer could spy on you or I don't know, could do all sorts of stuff that you don't actually want the software to do. So you have to trust the developer in that sense. You have to trust the developer that he didn't include malware into your binaries, into your software. So Richard Stallman, he didn't like this idea. That wasn't his vision for the future. So he started a free software movement where the source code had to be available so people could actually check what they were running on their computer. So in that sense, there wasn't a power relationship anymore. They didn't need to trust their developer so free in that context means freedom. It doesn't mean free as in free beer. Yeah. So in Dutch, we have the word uh, vrij, which means freedom, and gratis, which means free beer. So we can intuitively understand this. Yeah, we actually have two different words for that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I'm sure German has 27 words for it. Probably. Where was I? So yeah, that that was Stallman's vision. Then I think in the early 90s, there was a different... I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but there was this paper about um, the cathedral and the bazaar, the bazaar and the cathedral, something like that. It was like a Linux contributor. And he explained the benefits of free software, as it was just called until then, from a kind of different perspective, where he explained how free software could actually provide high quality code because there's a lot of people checking the code enough eyeballs make all bugs shallow that's that's the saying yeah so he came up with a more sort of pragmatic reason why free software was a good idea this charmed this this convinced the netscape people to turn netscape the internet browser into an open source project i'm calling it an open source now and that, that was firefox and i'm calling it open source now because this group of people, they, they sort of rebranded free software to open source to sort of more accentuate the, these different benefits. So they weren't necessarily proposing or they weren't in favor of open sourcing software for this philosophical 
freedom reasons that Stallman was advertising the, that he was promoting but more this pragmatic attitude so that's that's where sort of the difference between free software and open source stems was, from was there also a difference between freeware because of course that was a term that was going around too but freeware could still be closed source i don't know i i do know that basically every free software project is also an open source project there are very subtle differences for some of the licenses but it's basically the same thing just sort of explained with different philosophies. All right. Well, in our case, we're going to be quite pragmatic, so the terminology is less important. You want to just go go with open source? Yes. Okay, so we're just going to discuss open source. Okay, so Bitcoin is an open source project? Yes. Why is that very important in the context of Bitcoin shores? Well, imagine you're trying to use Bitcoin and you install a computer program and it gives you an address and then it turns out there's some code in there that just steals your Bitcoin. That would be, you know, bad. Yeah, that would be bad. So at, at minimum, you want to know what code you're actually, you know, about to send your your pension to. Yep. Well, this is actually, this is exactly, I, I just gave you the spying example of Stallman, but this would obviously be another great example where, you yep. know, you don't want, you don't want to trust the developers to steal, to not steal your coins. You it's, want... It's a very extreme example. It makes it very clear why you really need the maximum transparency of what the hell is running on your machine. Exactly. And we're going to go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Yeah, because it's not that easy. No, it's not. It would be nice if it was that easy, but it's actually a lot harder than it sounds to make sure that the code on your computer is actually doing what you want it to do. Yeah, because one thing is you want the whatever Bitcoin code is running to be open source so you can see what it is. But most computer programs, as we talked about in the first episode, use libraries or dependencies. They use some other piece of software that in turn uses some other piece of software that in turn uses some other piece of software. I wanna I wanna take this one step at a time. First step. So the 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 code of Bitcoin, it's open source, it's on the it's hosted on the it's GitHub repository. Yeah, it's a Git repository, which is also hosted on GitHub. Right, okay, sorry. Thanks for that correction. So it's on GitHub, so anyone with the skills can look at this source code and you know check that it does what it's supposed to do. So, sure. in addition, everybody who has that skill can compile it themselves rather than downloading it. Right. So First question, Shores, because I actually cannot read this at all. How many people do you think can actually read this? Well, that depends because, on what you mean by actually read. I mean, well, how that, many people are, you know, computer literate in general? Probably many, many tens of millions in the world. Mm -hmm. How many can roughly read what a C program is doing? I guess at least again, several million, tens of millions probably. But the number of people who can actually understand what the Bitcoin software is doing is probably a lot smaller. And the number of people who actually do, in addition to being able to, is in the dozens. And then even right. even then it's it's hyper specialized. So somebody might know everything about peer-to-peer -peer networking code and have never looked at some other part of the code. So this sounds like a small number. Why is it so small and can it be bigger? How how could we make this bigger in the future? Well, one thing is you can make source code more clean, more readable, so then there are just more people who can read it because it's just better. So why isn't that the case right now, for example? Well, it's better than it was, but uh, when Satoshi wrote it, you know, everything was one file with God knows how many lines of code in it, and 
you know, that's very, very, very hard to reason about. Mm-hmm. For the non-programmers, that means, reason about means... Just you're looking at the code and, and you see, okay, there's a co- function called make a private key. Okay, what does that function do? Oh, calling this other function. Where's that other function? Oh, it's 20,000 lines up in the same file. Let me scroll 20,000 lines up, have a look at that fu- co- code, and it's calling something else. Reason- oh, but it's, it's not calling something. It's referring to a variable. Oh, but this variable can be accessed in like 15 different places at the same time somewhere in this file. Reason about means understand what the hell is going on. Yes. Right. Okay, so there's not that many, but hopefully, you know, it's improving or it's getting easier or that's, but that's a work in progress and yeah, it's still and pretty hard. Yeah, we're a little bit of help from all these altcoins, which are cloning the Bitcoin code. Not all altcoins are, but many are. And they're cloning it and they're working on it and they might occasionally find bugs too, or at least they're looking at it. Right. Okay, so let's say I trust that this process where, you know, a bunch of people can look at it and I kind of trust that they're not all cheating and they're this process sort of working. At that point, I can uh, download the binaries from bitcoincore.org and I should be totally fine, right? No. Oh, what's the next problem? Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of problems. First of all, who says BitcoinCore.org is run by the same people you just mentioned? It might not be. Well, okay, maybe you can still prove that. But then maybe the site is hacked or the site isn't hacked, but the DNS is hacked. There's lots of reasons why the thing you download is not the thing you think you're downloading. It's called malware. So one thing that open source projects almost always do is publish a checksum. Mm Mm-hmm which is basically saying when you download this thing, you should, you know, and you run this little script on it, it should have the following checksum. That's one thing you can do, but then can you trust the checksum that you downloaded? I don't know, because whoever hacked the site might have also hacked this checksum. So then what you do is you sign the checksum. So for example, a well-known person, in this case, Vladimir van der Laan, he signs uh, the checksum with a signature, with a key, with a PGP key that's publicly known. It's been the same for like 10 years. So then at least, you know, you kind of have something to check. Okay, so how does Vladimir know that the binaries he got actually reflect the open source code from the Git? Well, he knows because he did it. So he took he, the source he, code, he ran a command, and he got the binary. Yeah, and by he ran a command, you mean he put it through some other piece of software that produces binaries from the open source software. Yeah, a compiler and a bunch of other tools. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. But then the question is, how do you know? Right. And here it gets a little bit more complicated. Ideally, what you do is you run the same command and you also compile it. And then hopefully you get the same result. Right. And sometimes that works with some projects. But as projects get really complicated, it often doesn't work because... It can depend on some very specific details on your computer system, what the exact binary file is going to be. So, for example, the software uses libraries, and those libraries are living on your system. So we talked about that in one of the first episodes about Mm -hmm. libraries in general. These libraries might live in your system, and these libraries get updated all the time. And maybe you updated two months ago, and Vladimir is like very accurate, and he updated yesterday. And so the final product contains a different version of a library, and if you only change one letter in a computer program, then boom, your checksum doesn't work anymore. 
So that's that's one of the things that can go wrong. Hang on, one step at a time. Why do I even need to care that my checksum matches whatever Vladimir signed if I compiled it myself? If if all you want is to compile it yourself, you don't care. Right. But if you basically what this whole mechanism relies on is that some people check, and that if some people find a problem, they're gonna sound the alarm bell, and so your security model kind of depends on hoping that somebody will do this checking for you because you didn't compile it yourself. Right. Everyone who compiles the software should compile into the same checksum because that's how you know everyone's running the same software and no one's being fed malicious software, for example. Yeah, so you, as as somebody who wants to make sure there are no shenanigans going on, you go to bitcoincore.org, you download the binary, you just put it in a nice place, and then you compile it yourself and you see, hey, is this the same? If not, you... Go on Twitter and on the news media and you say, hey, there's malware on this website. Right. However, that is not trivial because of, for example, these libraries that might be slightly different. So you get a different checksum, even though there are no shenanigans going on. It's just your computer is different. Right. So if I compile the Bitcoin Core software on my MacBook and you compile it on your MacBook, they could still compile into different binaries yes because there might be some subtle differences and it's not just libraries it can even be the time of your computer so because as you're compiling stuff there's some random output that contains a timestamp maybe a log and if the log is included in the final product then there's a different timestamp in your version than in my version because we didn't compile at exactly the same time and so that's that's a problem. Right. So and somehow we need to make sure that the same source code compiles into the exact same binaries. Yeah, at least if your goal is to, to verify that nothing went wrong, right? Because normally if you're just using it yourself, you don't care about that. Right. So this phenomenon is called deterministic builds. Mm-hmm. So deterministic really just implies given a source, you're going to get the same binary. And if you change one letter in the source, you're going to get a different binary, but everybody will get the same, basically, if they make the same change. So how is this done? So this is difficult, and the the current way that Bitcoin Core is doing this is called Gideon. And just to sum that up, it's basically you take an Ubuntu machine, could be a virtual machine or could be a real machine, and you just take a very specific Ubuntu version, I think, that you download, and you know many people in the world have seen that version, so you kind of trust it. And then you inside that machine, you build another virtual machine, and inside... That virtual machine, there are all sorts of little changes made to make sure that that machine is identical for everyone who builds this thing. So like, it, I think it uses a fake time and all the files are in the same place and all the libraries are the exact same versions, etc. And then you build Bitcoin Core. And then you look at the checksums inside that virtual machine. Right, yeah. So it's kind of like running a computer within your actual computer within a computer and everyone's sort of running the same computer within the computer in their actual computer and therefore the software they're compiling into binaries in that computer in the computer is resulting in the exact same binaries that's right this is turned into a checksum and if the checksums match then the developers sign because they can all verify that yep we're all it all worked out and this is the correct checksum and you can trust this because we're not all going to cheat on you. Unless they are, but at but least... you can catch them. Yeah. Right. Anybody has the opportunity to see that there's a shenanigan going on. Anyone can follow this process and catch that something. Yeah, in theory. In, in practice, it's a pain. It's a huge pain to get the system working. There's not many open source projects that use this. As far as I know, Bitcoin Core and Tor do. Mm-hmm. Maybe a few others, but not a lot. 
Maybe some other cryptocurrencies. Some, but a lot of them, even if they've cloned Bitcoin Core, they stop doing this process because it's too much work. Right. But, okay. So, so far, so, so good. So it's great, but the, there is another problem because the rabbit hole is deeper. And uh, there's actually two different problems, but they're kind of the same. So let's start with the first thing. Let's say you have read every single line of code in Bitcoin Core. And you can say, okay, I've read every single line in there. I understand every single line of it. It's just like, you know, when you read the Facebook terms and conditions. <laughs> but then it turns out the Facebook terms and conditions point to some other document. Like, for example, I don't know, the United States law. All of it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, with phrases like as defined in law. Now you have a problem because Bitcoin Core uses all sorts of other things. And so you have to inspect those things too. Yeah, de dependencies, evil. these are yes. called, yeah. Because the dependencies could also be stealing your, your coins. So they should be open source too. And Bitcoin Core doesn't use that many dependencies anymore, right? Exactly. So one of the constraints when working on Bitcoin Core is to try and keep the number of dependencies as small as possible mm -hmm. and also not update them all the time. Because, of course, the people who maintain those dependencies know that Bitcoin Core is using it, right? So you need to be somewhat on your toes to make sure that those projects are, are being scrutinized too. So let's say some dependency is corrupted. What could that mean for Bitcoin? Could, well, they, could we, they... Go on. Yeah, if some dependency is corrupted, it could steal your coins. Right. Basically. That bad. That's Yeah, that's your worst case. <laughs> okay. And this actually happened, at least in another project, called Copay. Um, which is a, I think it's a library for wallets in general, used by BitPay, but by other companies too. Right. And it's it's written in a different programming language, but the, the general idea is the same. You know, they have a piece of software that's open source, everybody can review it, but it uses dependencies. And those dependencies use dependencies, and those, and those, and those, and those. And in this case, they were using NPM, the Node Package Manager, and Node.js, and that package manager is basically a very large open source community. And they've very much focused on making very modular packages. So there's, I think there's an individual package for just addition or, you know, multiplication or fairly trivial packages. And every single package links to a place on GitHub. So it's all open source. And every package could have its own maintainer who can release updates whenever they want. And so now you have a problem because you might be pulling in 10,000 dependencies without even realizing it, because you, you only pull in maybe five dependencies, but those each pull in 50 dependencies, and those each pull in another 50 dependencies. And if any of these is corrupted, it could at least theoretically include coin-stealing malware. Yeah, and so it depends. I mean, there are some ways in theory that you can try to avoid that by encapsulating, by saying, okay, this piece of code, you know, I'm going to run that code. I don't trust it, but I'm going to put it in some place where it cannot do anything other than that I want it to do. But with JavaScript, which is what they're using, at least at the time, this is two years ago, that was very difficult to do. So any JavaScript that is run can do anything in the entire browser. So in this case, with the CopyPay wallet, there would be private keys somewhere inside the browser. And a piece of malware could just say window dot blah, 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 dot steal coins, basically. And did this actually happened or? Well, somebody wrote that malware. I don't think it was exploited in the wild. I think it was detected on someone, time. Someone, because I vaguely remember this, but someone actually got this kind of malware into the Copay wallet, basically, into the Copay library. 
This yeah, was actually done. In a dependency of a dependency of a dependency. So what right. they did is they found some random faraway dependency down deep down in the tree. Right. That's actually used by millions of, of projects. And they that pro that dependency was no longer maintained. So somebody wrote it, everybody uses it, and then the guy or girl no longer maintains it. And so the attacker sent an email to that main previous maintainer saying, Hey, I really love your project, you know, I care about this. Maybe I can take over from you. And so he got the keys to the kingdom and he was able to publish updates. And so then he published an update that contained some malware, some coin stealing code that was specifically designed to attack Copay wallets or you know, the, the general library. And what it did was, well, he, first of all, he hit it. So, you know, it's open source, but if you release an update, you can do ver different versions. So you can do a minor update saying, oh, this is just a small change and you can do major updates. And most software will constrain constrain these updates. So it will automatically update for you, but only for minor updates. It won't automatically upgrade a major upgrade. So what the attacker did is he made a minor update and then immediately afterwards made a major update, which undid the attack. So if you looked at the most recent version of the code, there would not be any attack code in there. So anybody inspecting the open source would be, okay, this is fine. But if you looked at the specific minor version that was being used then it was there so you, you you know you don't only have to review the most recent source codes you have to review the source code specific version that you're using for all of your dependencies it's completely impossible right so open so copay was open source but because of these dependencies and the dependencies on the dependencies it's still not going to solve your problems. No, so, and it was very, very subtle, right? Because right. It was, I guess it was found by somebody very, very carefully looking for this sort of stuff because it's very hard to stumble into it. And it was even made that it wouldn't reveal itself early because what you kind of want to do as an attacker is you want to look for a very big bounty and then take that because as soon as you start stealing coins, if you only steal one Satoshi and the person losing that one Satoshi notices it, they're going to sound the alarm bell and then people are going to start looking where the malware is knowing that it exists and they're going to find it. So it was basically, it had a condition in there that says there has to be at least a couple of Bitcoin in there and only then am I going to attack. And I guess that never happened, mm. fortunately, because they caught it on time. But so this is the risk. So what's the solution? Just not depend on dependencies? Pretty much. I mean, I think there are now, you know, over the last couple of years, there's some companies that will sort of screen as a service that might actually go through all these dependencies. But what you really want to do is you want to have very few dependencies. And especially you want to stay away from things that have nested dependencies. So in the case of Bitcoin Core, it's, it's not too bad. It has, I think, about 10 dependencies that do not have a bunch of nested dependencies. So right. it's, it's not a big tree. It's, it's relatively shallow. So you'd have to go after those dependencies directly to attack. So that's good news. Okay, sure. I think that part is clear. Now, I have another question for you. I think you have a vague idea where I'm going because we already discussed exactly where we're going. We, we just discussed how you have deterministic builds and how different developers are all using this Gitian building thing to get the exact same binaries and sign all of that. Now, here's my next question. What if the Gitian building process itself is corrupted somehow? Is that possible? Yeah, or specifically, Gitian uses Ubuntu. And what if somebody says, hey, this Bitcoin project's pretty cool. This Ubuntu project's pretty cool. Let me contribute some source to Ubuntu. And now, 
when everybody runs their Gideon builder, which includes Ubuntu, there is a compiler on Ubuntu, and maybe that compiler is modified to, if it compiles Bitcoin Core, it actually adds some code to steal coins. Right. It would be very, very scary. Because so you still have deterministic builds, because everybody would be using the same malware to build it. Yeah, that, I guess that's a dependency in itself then, right? That's like a dependency for Ubuntu, or am yeah, I so saying that, that's right? I guess there's two kinds of dependencies. One is a dependency you're actively running, you know, that's inside the binary that you're shipping to your customers. But the other dependency, and that's a real can of worms, are all the tools that you're using to produce the binary. Right. And even to download the binary, but yeah. Yeah, so if the if the tools you use to build Bitcoin Core is corrupted, then you still have a problem because all of the developers are getting themselves the same binaries from their Gitting process, but if that's corrupted. Anyways, yeah. I and think so, our, our so listeners what, get it. Right. So, what's so the, what you're hoping is that the people who are maintaining all these compilers and all the other things know what they're doing and would never let any such backdoor through. But, you know, that would be boring. So how do we get more paranoid? How do we get more paranoid? How do we solve this problem? Well, the key there is to make everything open source and everything a deterministic build. So not just Bitcoin is a deterministic build, but every dependency of Bitcoin is a deterministic build, and every tool that is used to build Bitcoin is a deterministic build, including the compiler. And this is where we <laughs> introduce Geeks. This is a project Carl Dong has been working on and has given several talks on that we'll probably link to in the show notes. Yeah, Carl Dong from, uh, he's with uh, Chaincode Labs, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the trick then, it's a difficult trick. Well, it sounds very difficult to me because you gotta, you need a compiler that itself needs to be compiled as well because yeah. the compiler is also software. So if so you want to... So this wanna, is turtles all the way down. Exactly. So what Geeks, the ambition of Geeks is roughly as follows. You start with about, I think it's 150 bytes of actual machine code. So that is binary code that you must trust, but it's only 150 bytes and the whole world can like study it and put it on a temple wall or something like that. <laughs> but from that 150 bytes, all you need to do now is read source and compile source. So how do you do that? Because there's no compiler yet, right? So the, the, this 150 bytes is able to bootstrap. It is able to read something. That's all it can do basically and, and produce a little bit more code. So it it reads some something and then it builds up a very simple compiler and once it has the very simple compiler, that very simple compiler reads another piece of source, which then builds a slightly more complicated compiler. And then that slightly more complicated compiler builds another compiler. And this goes on for quite a while, I think, until eventually you have the modern C compiler that we all know and love, which is itself, of course, open source, right? All, all compilers have this fundamental problem that who, who compiles the compiler? It sounds pretty fascinating. So it's like, a, it's, it, it, yeah. It is it, turtles all the way down, but there's like actually a, a bottom. Yeah, it's, so it's a, not turtles all the way down. It's a seed that 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 builds a compiler that builds compilers. Yeah, so all the compilers and subcompilers are all open source. It's just that seed that is not source that has to be a binary because you have to you have to start with the binary somewhere. Yeah, but you can literally just type it. And the, and this is a work in progress. This isn't used or finished yet, right? I think it's a work in progress, but it is also working. Hmm. I believe we can now use this for Bitcoin Core because I recently did it as well tried to just hit the commands blindly and it was so, producing so, actual bitcoin core binaries that could be run and that are not turtles all the way down i think it starts doesn't start at the very bottom so i still had problems going from the bootstrap but that that's where it's going yeah. so do one of these compilers build 
like the the Gitian thing? Is it the same thing, or is it's it? It's not building Gitian itself. It's, it's building, but it's a similar principle. So right. the idea is it it can build. I think the idea eventually is that it can build a whole operating system. So then your virtual machine or your physical machine would be running a operating system that you've built from scratch. But in this case, I think it just builds the compiler tools. And once those compiler tools are there, it can just start building Bitcoin Core as it would otherwise do. Similar to Gitian, as in it has to make sure that there are no timestamps in there and you know it doesn't use anything else from your computer. So it solves two things, right? It has no untrusted dependencies. It's not using random libraries. It's also also using this, always using the same versions of libraries, which means that everybody can produce the same result. Interesting. Okay, so the these hundred and fifteen bytes were were they one hundred and fifteen? I don't know. I uh, think just it was a small, but no. pretty small. What? So do we still need to trust these, or I I don't know how big the leap of trust is there. Well, you can read them. There's machine code. As far as I know, it's machine code that can parse a hexadecimal piece of text. And then I guess it parses the hexadecimal piece of text, and that piece of text is another piece of machine code, I guess, mm. which is then run. So you, it's it's still open source in the sense that the binary is the source, but machine code can be read, right? It's very, very tedious to read it. Wait, these 115 bytes, they're, machine co they're source they're, code or they're no, binaries? They're, they're binaries, but you can read a binary. It's not fundamentally impossible to read a binary. It's just very difficult to read a binary if it's big. I see. But if the binary is tiny, then it's just a set of machine instructions because what happens when you run a program is the CPU just looks at the first two bytes or whatever and it says, what's, what's the instruction? And then the instruction says, okay, create a variable. And the next instruction says, set this variable to two. And then the next instruction says add five to the variable and the, the fourth instruction says restart the computer or something like that so if it's just 150 bytes you can look at every single byte and see what the computer instruction is in there and you can still reason about it i see and i believe the only thing it does is it just has a, a small program that's able to open a file and read that file and then execute that file interesting and, and then slowly you try to get to a point where it's human readable Right. So the low, very low-level compilers, the very simple compilers, might have code that's not very easy to read, but still very short. And then very quickly, you get very nice, elegant programming languages that you can read. But something like Rust, in order to build Rust, you need to build compilers that can compile Rust. In order to make it build a Rust compiler, you probably need a C compiler. So, yeah. This sounds super fascinating to me, the fact that this is possible. Yeah, and then at least you have this ginormous spiderweb of code like all of it is code and you know that it produces a binary and then you just need lots and lots of people to review every single piece of code in there and be very conservative about updating any of it any of it because if you update any of it well it could be malware again right so you know and most people are used to automatically updating the computer okay well so this is how we're gonna make bitcoin truly trustless essentially well i mean turtles really all the way down because you know you're still running it on a piece of hardware uh, true. Yeah, of course. That's a whole other. <laughs> so trusted hardware, nightmare. open source hardware is another movement. Yeah. That are trying to get rid of all these weird chips on your computer that are doing arbitrary things. You have no idea what it is doing. Yeah. Do we want to give a shout out to um, WalletScrutiny.com? Yeah. So WalletScrutiny.com is a website that looks at various wallets, whether they are open source at all. And and a lot of them aren't. Yep. That's that's pretty scary. There's like dozens of wallets that aren't even open source. 
Yeah, so the only way to verify those wallets would be to inspect the binaries, which you know, the, the tools to make that also slightly less painful than it sounds. So if there's some very obvious code in those wallets that says steal coins, somebody will probably still find it, but it's not good. Yeah, and then you have wallets that have source published, but if you have that source and you want to make sure that the binary they give you in the uh, Play Store is the same, yeah, it's not that easy. Sometimes they, they don't offer any feature functionality for it. Sometimes they do, but it doesn't work because it hasn't been maintained because a lot, not a lot of people how would check you, this. How would you make that? How, how would you check that? How, what's the process there? How do you make sure that... So wallet scrutiny actually for some wallets, for example, AB Core, which is a kind of a full node on Android. It's a bit of a toy project, but it's very cool. They, on the site, they just have 20 lines of code that you run in a terminal that says a you know, get this thing from GitHub, get this Android libraries, build this project, and then compare the checksums. And they show, if you execute these commands, you get the exact result. So the, the amp you're downloading on your Android phone, you can check the checksum for it? Yeah. Okay. I think so. But I don't think they've done it for iOS yet, and I don't even know if you can do it with iOS. Right. So, and yeah, for computers, for normal computer programs, you might need something like Gideon, which is very tedious, and I, I don't think a lot of people are going to do it. Yeah, so wallet web, scrutiny... Web applications are, again, a different possibility. I once worked on that. And I think I once got got a web application to be a deterministic build, and you could actually run a command and it would do it. But if if you don't maintain that, it's going to break. Because all the Node.js tooling and all that stuff is not designed to make reproducible builds too easy. Yeah, so, okay, so walletscrutiny.com, it's a project by Leo Vanderslap, and it categorizes wallets into custodial, not even open source, so not custodial, but also not open source, mm-hmm. which is probably even worse than custodial. I don't, I don't know what you think. Depends if you know who it is. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, if some random person, the only way you can find out who they are is to ask Apple, and then Apple says... Oh, sorry, that was some random BVI thing. We have no idea. Yeah. But anyway, so custodial, non-custodial, and also not open source. And then there's not custodial, but at least open source. And then there's the category non-custodial, open source, and deterministically buildable, which are only a few wallets. That That's sort of the category you want to be in, but that's only yeah. And I handful. think the site only covers Android wallets. Right. Okay, sure. So that, does that cover our episode? Is that it? I think so. I think we've, we've opened quite a few cans of worms and uh, you folks can think about that during the Christmas holidays. Yeah, we're taking a break. There will not be any episode over, well, until the new year. Yeah, probably. Sure, see you in the new year. Yes. Have, have a good Christmas. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Van Weirdem Shores NATO. There you go.